Welcome to Music in the Church, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza. So this summer, I went to one of my very favorite conferences, the Christian Congregational Music Conference. It's held every other year in Cuddiston, which is just outside of Oxford in the UK. And it's basically a week of church music nerds getting together and talking church music related things. It's fantastic. Uh, this was my third time at the conference. And this year I recorded interviews with all five of the plenary speakers for the conference. And so that means here on Music and the Church, for this month all the way through the end of the year, episodes will feature the plenary speakers from the conference, which is just fantastic. These are lovely, spiritual and thoughtful people that have really insightful and interesting things to say about Christian congregational music. So today, to launch things off, we're going to be hearing from the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Arnold. He is the Dean of Divinity at Modlin College, Oxford, and before ordination, he was a vocalist, including with St. Paul's Cathedral Choir and the Sixteen, and he's also an author of several books. In our conversation, we'll hear about two of them, Music and Faith, Conversations in a Post-Secular Age, and the book Sacred Music in Secular Society. And just so you know, I'll have links to both of those in the show notes, which are at musicandthechurch.com slash 41. So before we get into the conversation, I want to let you know about two other resources that I have, which you can find at musicandthechurch.com, one of which is my whole website of resources for people who are in church ministry, especially musicians, but also people who are in ministry more generally. The second thing is that I host another podcast, which is named Called at the Intersection of Life and Ministry, and this is a podcast for church professionals, and I co-host it with a pastor. We... We really talk about all things ministry. It's a lot of uh, a lot of fun and a lot of nitty gritty for people who are in the thick of church work. So those two things at musicandthechurch.com. And now here is a conversation with Jonathan Arnold. Let's start out by talking about your relationship to music and your own faith background. Okay, so I have always had a love of music and particularly of singing. So I've been in choirs ever since I was a, a, a young child at uh, primary school, secondary school, and then towards the end of my secondary education discovered the the wealth of cathedral music, which I didn't really know at all. But um, when I was about 18, I, I joined a cathedral choir and had a very steep learning curve of learning to sight read, <laughs> uh, learning Anglican choral repertoire, which I didn't know, learning how to sing with lay clerks and choristers. And after a year of, of that very steep learning curve, I, I went to university in Oxford where I fell in love really with the whole um, world of, of choral singing and joined as many choirs as I could possibly join. And at the end of that first year, I then was offered a, a sort of permanent position at, at one of the, what's known as the foundations in Oxford, which is one of the big five uh, choral foundations in Oxford and Cambridge. So at Magdalen College, Oxford, I became a choral scholar, which meant that I was singing seven or eight services every single week, mm. different repertoire for each each one. You and must have gotten very good at sight reading. <laughs> so by that time, I could sight read, and by that time, I would I'd really, um, even though I was studying theology at the university um, officially and had a, a vocation towards that, I discovered this other vocation, which was uh, music and singing, and I was absolutely determined to um, to follow that. So I, at the end of university, I packed up my bags, moved to London, 
without a, a, a penny or a job. Um, uh, started teaching music wherever I could, joining choirs wherever I could, making a crust, paying the rent, and then applying to music college. And I went to the Royal Academy of Music, studied singing, and became a professional singer. So I sang for eight years with St. Paul's Cathedral Choir, and for 14 years in total with a choir called The Sixteen, who are uh, a professional English choir, and many other choirs as well, um, as well as doing solo things. But the theology was always there, so whilst I was doing that, I then um, registered at King's College London to do a doctorate in church history, as it happens, and completed the doctorate, and then the two vocations of music and theology led me down this path uh, where ordination uh, sort of came at the end of that road and um, I went forward for selection and became a priest. So after a, a few years of training and curacy, I basically gave up the singing and started work as a full-time college chaplain in Oxford, at Worcester College, and I did that for eight years. And then I've transferred to Magdalen College, where I've been Dean of Divinity. And in both of those um, environments in Oxford, there's a lot of music. There's wonderful college choirs, um, music within the liturgy, as well as pastoral, um, ministry, academic work, and so on. So that's that's where I've that's my journey. Um, that's where I've come from, uh, which really explains why um, I have this interest in in singing, music, and spirituality. What do you see the relationship as between music and spirituality? Well, it's always been a very close relationship for me. So close, I I, I think that. Um, I would say that singing for me has always been a form of prayer. And in fact, when I became a chaplain, I, I sort of went through a, a, a period of, of therapy, writing a book about sacred music, where I was trying to work out where, my, where I had spiritual experiences through singing were not just in the liturgy. They were also in the concert hall the recording studio, listening to music at home. So there's an individual level of, of, of um, experiencing um, the transcendent, numinous nature of God through sound. There's also obviously through singing a communal aspect of prayer or praise. But it's really fundamentally, I think, about connection. I think it's about how one finds a way of connecting the material with the divine. As Martin Luther wrote about music, believing very much in Pythagoras's idea of the music of the spheres, that there's a kind of celestial music to the universe, that the mathematics of the universe and, and music are deeply entwined, the kind of musical ratios that are embedded within the physical world. And Luther thought that human music was a way through, towards celestial music rather like looking through an icon, that you get through the musical mundana, as he called it, the mundane music, in order that you might glimpse something of the uh, musica celestia, the, the, the celestial music, that we most of the time can't hear because of, because of our own inadequacies, because of our frailties, you know. And so I find that a very useful concept, really. And St. Augustine went so far as to say, God is music. Um, now, I think, you know, before we say that that's a kind of idolatry, we might need to unpack it a little bit that, you know, music is not God. 
But one aspect or an aspect of the divine trinity is a kind of musical harmony. And I think humanity, whether they are believers or not, strive, seek for meaning to life. And very often the harmony of music can give us an inkling of that deeper harmony within the within the universe that that we might say has an effect upon our spirit or our soul this is something that we i'm speaking as a practitioner so often when we're talking about music in a church context we talk about well it's a great way to get people to remember the words yeah and we don't necessarily talk about it as something more just about music mm. And what we do when we make music. Mm. It's, it's a, as if music's importance in the worship setting is only about conveying. Yeah, uh, and of course, historically, there's been a lot of tension around this um, subject. When polyphony first came into being in the 11th and 12th centuries in, in Paris, and it's burgeoning through the 13th and 14th centuries, music became more and more elaborate. To the point that in the 15th century, certain... Renaissance humanists were, like um, Desiderius Erasmus, for instance, were highly sceptical of the noises that choirs were making because the melismatic music, that is, phrases that take a, a single syllable of a word and stretch it over half a page of music, are uh, not conveying anything about the meaning of the words. The words are completely lost in elaborate 15th century polyphony. And so when the Reformation came along, the idea of the emphasis upon the comprehensibility of the word then came back to, to the fore. So Luther and his chorales, Calvin and his metrical psalms, all are ways of getting people to sing their theology, to sing their faith, and to learn the words. And of course, other Reformers like Ulrich Zwingli in um, in Zurich, who was perhaps the finest of the reformers, uh, musicians amongst the reformers, uh, banned music altogether, um, partly on the basis that it was unscriptural, he thought. So that when St. Paul says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in your heart, Zwingli said, well, in your heart means to yourself. <laughs> and not at And church. not out loud. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, the tension has been there. And of course, since the Reformation and Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment and particularly 20th, 21st century evangelicalism, the words have been absolutely crucial to what's being conveyed by the sound uh, of the music. But I think there's also a deeper story too um, about the, the music itself. And one could, um, as an example, give untexted music non-texted music like a Bach cello suite and discuss, well, does this have meaning? Is this absolute music that has no, no meaning outside of its own self? Or is it, can we hear it within a context of faith? I mean, either the, the context of the composer himself, J.S. Bach, who was a, a, a believer, or perhaps the, the listener, or a much more uh, complex and wider set of um, social, theological, historical uh, contexts. This brings us back to thinking about music and spirituality mm. and um, the relationship with that. And can you, can listening or performing a Bach cello suite be mm. itself a spiritual practice, right? 
In my previous book, I, I, I interviewed Rome Williams, and, and one of the things that he said, we talked about the cello suites. One of the key things he said is learning to listen is uh, what it means to learn to to uh, live with and before God. So um, listening with intent, listening with um, care and uh, attention is one way that we learn about how to encounter the divine. And I think we found between the, the two of us that the connection between listening to a Bach cello suite or maybe a piece of plain song has a kind of intensity to it that we're not quite sure whether we can name it or um, describe it. But I think Rowan Williams said it was something like a mystical experience that you may have, um, may be akin to something like St. John of the Cross. It's like a, uh, the, the, the burning of the hot coals upon the, uh, upon the lips. It's, a, it's, a, it's an encounter which is at once intense and numinous and transcendent. So I think there's a whole, um, I, th- I think there's a whole wealth of uh, ideas around listening intently, and the spirit- Christian spirituality about uh, participating in the divine trinity of the Godhead. Can we talk about how you compare music and faith mm. with music and belief? You make yeah. a distinction between those two relationships. Yes, yes. So in my talk here at the conference and the new book that's come out, which is Music and Faith, Conversations in a Post-Secular Age. I talk about uh, where we are in Western society now, or I think where we may be heading. The forces of secularism, of what we might call new atheism, seem to be on the wane. The idea that concepts of God are simply going to die out within the next 50 years is patently not true. And we're now living in a world where People of various strains and uh, facets of belief or faith or unbelief are coexisting within perhaps a more creative uh, way. So the idea of the distinction between faith and belief comes from an analysis of the word for faith or belief that we have from the Greek New Testament. The word we have in the Gospels and uh, St. Paul is pistis and in that one Greek word, it's like a prism. It has many, many meanings. It can mean faith, it can mean trust, it can mean relationship, and it can mean belief. But in the English language, we have these very, very different concepts. We have faith, and we have belief, and we have trust. And we use them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas different in the Greek world, yeah. they're all in the same world, in the same word. So what does this mean? Well, I mean, in terms of translation, it it means that when we come across this Greek word, we've got to make a decision about how to translate it. Do we translate it as belief or faith? And whatever we do, we make um, a huge difference to the meaning of that text, because faith is largely about something that we do. It's something that we practice. We either do it... um, through solitary prayer or through communal activity or through the living out. It's a kind of uh, active uh, expression of um, the, the internal conviction. But we don't have a verb in English to faith, so we don't mm. use it. We don't say, yeah. today I am faithing or I am going to do some faith, but we do have the verb to believe. So whenever it comes as a verb, like um, 
Pistuo, I believe, we always come up with I believe. Now, belief in the English language has this connotation of propositional consent. You know, that I believe in angels, I believe in devils, I believe in the Virgin Mary, you know, I believe this, I believe mm-hmm. this, but I statement, don't believe statement, statement. this, this, and this. So it's basically creedal. And so you, you end up with this kind of rational uh, thought, you know, some things I believe and some things I don't. Um, whereas faith um, doesn't really ask those questions so much. Faith isn't saying, well, how much do I believe in the virgin birth today? Or how much do I believe in the resurrection? Faith is more about the doing. So it's about joining in with the hymn. It's about singing with the choir. It's about kneeling down and praying. It's about helping the homeless, the bereaved, the prisoner, Mm -hmm. the weak. And it's not so much about, well, do I believe in this or not today? It's about just actually doing the Christian faith. And I think where we come to music, I think we're much more in the realm of faith than we are in the terms of belief. Now, one of the ways that that's being expressed today is in um, the rise in Western Europe, maybe not in the um, North America, but in Western Europe, there's been a documented rise in biblical illiteracy. Or in other words, there are fewer people who know their Bible. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to know um, a Harry Potter story than they are to know a nativity story, for instance. Or at least a third of people surveyed think that a Harry Potter narrative might come from the Bible. And a third of people didn't recognise that the nativity story came from the Bible. So this is... Oh, interesting. This is, yeah. this is uh, unfortunate stuff. And it's, it's kind of arisen out of a wider phenomenon of people not reading to their children anymore, mm-hmm. all sorts of things to do with And probably media. a change in uh, children's education. I would change think. in children's education. So how does Christian music then fit in with that particular framework? And I, I think for some people, the music is, can be a conveyor of the words of belief. So it can be something which affirms and carries they are, their particular convictions. You know, I believe that Jesus died for me, that he saved me, that I'm saved, he rose from the dead. These kind of sort of rational um, ideas. But for others, um, the encounter with sacred music might be something a bit less to do with those um, assertions uh, and more to do with a kind of spiritual connection with with the divine through beauty uh, and through what I call encounter, experience and relationship. And I think a lot of people who go to church are there because of encounter, experience and relationship. Uh, whether or not they hold exactly the same set of creedal propositional beliefs as the person standing next to them. Let's talk more about encounter, experience, and relationship. Mm. Encounter with God, encounter with um, God through people. Like, Yeah, so um, one of the stories uh, I tell is about a man who kind of had a really rough start in life, couldn't cope with being loved by anybody, and kept on pushing people away. But one person uh, loved him to bits and just stuck with him and warmed him up and allowed him through a, through a long period of encounter, experience and relationship of human love that he could trust this person and begin to trust himself to show love. 
and in that sense was was saved. Um, now, if human love can do that miraculous thing for the human soul, let us imagine what divine love might be capable of. And so it is about starting with the human story and moving towards a divine story, which I think is what God has done through Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we, we have a human encounter uh, which leads us through to a, a, you know, a divine encounter. It's both human and divine. And in music, um, if we think in terms of those Augustinian ideas that music, music is somehow divine, that God is music somehow, it's one way. I mean, it's not, it's not the whole way, but it's one way in which we can um, capture something of the divine through the natural world. Other people might do this through nature and the countryside and uh, beautiful mountains. Some people might do it through poetry. Others might do it through communal projects. There are, there are many, many ways to do this. But why music is so special, and people like Karl Barth have said this in the past, is that it doesn't have propositions in itself. The words might have assertions, but the, the music doesn't. It doesn't, say, it doesn't coerce you to believe one thing or, or, or Music or is, is faithing, music is not believing, that kind of... Yeah, so if we have this verb, faithing, or to faith, then music is, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. And it's, I think I like to say that it's a very worthwhile uh, place to be, um, especially in what I call a post-secular age, where um, there are lots of people going to church who don't necessarily believe. There are a lot of people who are belonging without the believing. And we have to really, as a church, as a, 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 a Christianity throughout the world, really look at that with great honesty at ourselves and, and what the phenomenon is and say, well, how, do we, how, how does music fit in here for, for all of these people? How do we um, uh, have a, a church that is accepting of, of everybody without losing its creedal identity? Where, you know, how do we welcome uh, the stranger, uh, the, the orphan, the widow, um, without being um, exclusive? And music is, is one way of connecting people in harmony that, that is like no other, really. This might be taking us rather far afield, but I'm so curious about your thoughts on ministering to people who are in the community, in the church community, and are not necessarily people who are um, focused on belief, maybe mm. um, find themselves rather in a lot of doubt or mm. find that specific creedal statements are not something that um, interests them or concern them, and yet here they are coming to church worshiping. Mm. Well, a colleague of mine, Brian Mountford has, has written a book on this called The Christian Atheist. Mm. This has an extraordinary title, doesn't it? But um, he's, he's found some, um, and a lot of them are in Oxford. One really interesting example is Philip Pullman, the, the author who lives here in Oxford, who calls himself um, a, a cultural Anglican, I think. And uh, perhaps even Richard Dawkins would, would call himself that. People who love the the tradition, the, the history, the the words of the Book of Common Prayer, the, you know, the, the the beautiful liturgy of the candles and the music, and but wouldn't sign up to any of the creedal beliefs of of the church. So that, that's that's one side of it. Now, what are those people getting? 
Well, they're getting a great sense of community, great sense of um, social cohesion, uh, which goes back to a an evolutionary um, basis. Another colleague of mine, Robin Dunbar at Magdalen, has done years and years of um, experimental research on the origins of singing as social cohesion within ev- evolutionary de- development. Mm-hmm. So in Neanderthal man, uh, singing develops as a way of bonding a particular group together, and by that bonding creates a greater strength and a greater defence against predation. So it keeps itself safer from uh, potential uh, attack. And he's also done experiments on how when people get together to sing, even if they're strangers, it has a chemical effect in the brain. So endorphin levels go up. So there's no doubt that coming to church and singing is good for you. I mean, mentally and physically. And uh, of course, you know, you might say also spiritually and, and psychologically. Sometimes I feel like I need to um, advertise like children's choirs. as like, come, your children will benefit from this. Like, yes. Stress relief for children. Well, it, <laughs> Which feels very silly, but it's also entirely true. It's entirely true. And it's scientifically proven. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a whole body of evidence, you know, of these experiments that mm-hmm. we know that it, that it raises endorphin levels and, and dopamine levels, that, that the chemical reactions in the brain are rather like the kind of trance-inducing, tra- tra- trance states that you get in some of the more shamanistic uh, religions. So, yeah, th- there's, there's great benefits from it, whatever your um, belief. So as a Christian minister, how do I, how do I deal with that? Well, in Magdalen, um, our congregation is very eclectic. It can be students who are Christian believers. It can be students who are not Christian believers, our fellows, you know, professors, as, um, or just people who've just wandered in off the street. And because we get a lot of tourists, they could be from anywhere in the world. And could be, you know, paid up members of other religions, you know, Mm -hmm. Buddhism and Islam, whatever. So we present what we present. Uh, We present a a dignified, beautiful service of prayers, of worship, of singing. And leave it to the member of the congregation to experience it how they will. And perhaps leave it to God to manifest himself through the worship, through the prayers, through the music, to each member of the congregation as as he as he wishes, as he can. So we don't we don't um we we operate a totally inclusive policy and welcome people from wherever they are and offer up whatever we can can do to the best of our ability. Now if people want to follow that up with me through, you know, a private prayer or questions or, um, uh, as very often happens, preparation for baptism or confirmation, then that's great. Um, very often I will see people come and go and they've come to a service. They love it. They're over from Australia or Hong Kong. They're just about to go home. And they say that was just beautiful. It was amazing. Absolutely wonderful. Some people want to take it back to their own to their own place and 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 actually experiment with their own church liturgy, um, and so there's, there's a kind of consulting role that we take on sometimes. Oh, interesting. So um, 
we've been over to the States a couple of times to, to, to do this, um, sort of take the whole package out there and sort of work with a particular uh, group of churches and see what they like to adopt and what they wouldn't, what we can learn from them, you know. So that's, yeah, that's the way, that's the way I do it. Let's think about implicit and explicit theology and how music relates to this and, and faith. Yeah, so rather like I was saying about faith, the difference between faith and belief is this symbiotic relationship between implicit and explicit religion. Implicit relates rather more to the doing side, the praxis of religion. The, the, the singing, the praying, the worship, the, the doing, the, the works of charity and so on. Now, the implicit in, in music is something which is implicit because we don't have to name it. We don't have to say what it's doing. Uh, it's something we, we do and we feel, we experience, we encounter. And it's a relationship thing because we're often doing it with other people. And it's a relationship thing because we're doing it to, to, to build a relationship with God. But it doesn't necessarily lead to any particular set of beliefs. Now, explicit religion, of course, is important because doctrine is is what 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 we build our religion on. It's it's how we come together and say, well, this is the basis of our faith. We believe in Jesus Christ, for instance. So, there are certain things which differ amongst Christian denominations, and there are some things that really don't. And explicit religion is saying there are look there are some doctrinal things here, which are the bottom line. So I'd, I certainly don't want to do away with the idea of belief. I don't want to do away with the idea of explicit religion. But what I am saying is that at its best in church life, the implicit religion that we practice, often through music and singing and prayer, actually has a, an, an influence upon the explicit and the belief. So that over time, a community will, in a nuanced way, change its set of explicit creedal beliefs. Now, we may not believe that doctrine evolves because we don't see it evolving very quickly. And very often, if somebody believes something different to us, we don't see that as an evolution. We just see it as something other, you know. But if we think historically, well, doctrine does evolve over time. Christian doctrine does evolve, which is why tradition in the Christian um, uh, story uh, and the, the, the stories of the saints and uh, of great spiritual writers through the centuries are hugely important to the spiritual nourishment of the ecclesial body throughout the world, um, as well as all the set of creedal propositions that we get from the Bible. So I'd like to just put that forward, that music is a great force, amongst other things, uh, in the world of natural theology, that can have um, a beneficial effect upon the whole realm of our implicit and explicit religious life. Uh, and I think that's all a very positive thing to say. Thank you so much for this conversation. Okay, thank you. Thanks to the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Arnold for this conversation. You can find show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 41, where you can also find lots of resources for musicians and other people ministering in churches. 
If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Bariza, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church. <laughs>